Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 9. So open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 9. As you find yourself there, um, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Verse 3, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer, supplications, with fastings, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel here is now in that first year of King Darius. Now remember as we went through the last couple of chapters, there in chapter 7 in verse 1, we made note of how... It was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. In chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, the vision appeared to me. And now here in chapter 9, verse 1, it's the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So we see in chapter 7 and 8, with the Babylonian empire is, is now ended. And now at this point, keep in mind that verse 1 of chapter 9 is right around seven years after Daniel chapter 8. So he's been waiting on the Lord for seven years. Remember what happened there in chapter 8, verse 27. Look at that passage. Read it with me, if you will. Because Daniel said this in Daniel eight twenty-seven. I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days afterwards. I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision but no one understood it. He has this vision, no one gets it. But what I love about Daniel is this, he's not stopping. He's like, okay, I don't get it yet, I don't get it now, but I'm going to keep looking to the Lord and looking to the Lord. And eventually in verse 2, he says, then in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books. As the time is now progressing, as Daniel now sees the end of the reign of the Babylonians, the beginning of the reign of the Medo-Persians, he now recognizes that here, Daniel is, um, as, as we recognize, Daniel here is a student of the word. And he's poured into this word. He's, he's, he's looking to say, God, what is your heart? What is your word? And so he becomes... And, and I think not just becomes, I think Daniel has been a student of the word of God. And as he's trying to understand, God gives him a message through the prophet Jeremiah. And so he said he understood by the books. Now, keep in mind, if you want a couple of verses simply to jot down, jot this down, um, 2 Timothy 2.15. In 2 Timothy 2.15 it makes this statement, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I think it's important for all of us to, you know, in a sense, become those students of the word that we can, as, you know, Paul tells Timothy, you know, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In a sense, as um, 
you know, where, where the book of Acts, there in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So they would go to the word, and they would go to the word, and they would go to the word, and keep in mind that Daniel here is one who is believing the word. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, just jot it down, it makes this statement, all scripture... All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. This is that heart where Daniel knows everything that God has spoken through the prophets is true, and it's going to be true, and it's going to come true. One other passage I want you to jot down if you're a note taker, and this is probably the primary one over all of them, in Psalm 119, verse 49, let me read this to you, but it's one you want to jot down eventually mark in your Bible. You want to grasp this passage because in Psalm 119, verse 49, it makes this statement, remember, this is now, now the, the psalm is saying, remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. He tells God, remember what you said about yourself. The thing that you said about yourself that caused me to hope in what you said. And what I love is this. I don't think there's any greater thing to give to God than what he's already said about himself. And we're going to find out as we go through this passage that, that God does not skimp on giving. He just doesn't. God is a giver, and he's a powerful giver. And if there's anything ever lacking in God, um, or what, what you sense is of God and what he's giving, the lacking is never in God. The lacking is usually in me. And it's because God wants to give an abundance. He wants to give exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. That's, that's who God is. That's how God gives. And what happens is this, it's usually us who we were so full of so many other things that God says, listen, I'd give you more, but you got to empty out some carnality. If you empty out that, I'll be able to pour in more. And I want to pour in more, but I'm limited. You and I, we limit God to what he can pour out because of what we do. Now, Daniel here, as he's a student of the word, believing in the inspiration of the word, two passages I want to give because he does say this. He understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So two passages I want to give you. The first is found in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 9 through 13. The second is going to be Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 10. Real close to each other, but let me read to you this first passage, Jeremiah 25, 9 through 13. Behold, I will send and make all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around. And I will utterly destroy these nations all around. And I will utterly destroy them. And make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, 
the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when the 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it and is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. So God now makes this statement through Jeremiah, I'm going to fulfill this word. There are going to be 70 years that are determined. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4, he makes this statement. I'm going to read all the way through verse 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to who all were to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat the fruits. In other words, make yourself at home. You're going to be there a while. Don't, don't listen to these false prophets that said you're going to just turn around and come right back. He says, I'm telling you, when I carried you away, so, so build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. So keep in mind, it's going to be longer than just you having kids. You're going to have kids, you're going to marry off your kids, you're going to have grandkids, so he's letting you know, just make yourself at home there. And so he says this, Again in verse 6, take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons um, and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for its peace, for in its peace you will have peace. This is a powerful word that Jeremiah is giving to those who will be there in that land. Pray for the peace of the land. And we're going to see that here Daniel is actually going to be taking that word to heart. And I think sometimes that's a word that you and I need to take to heart. We need to take in that word to say, pray for the peace of this nation. Pray for the peace of the city. Because in its peace we'll have peace. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which, cause, which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord. Verse 10, after 70 years are completed at Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. So God gives them the promise that it's going to be 70 years. And after that 70 years, God is going to bring them back. God is going to just restore them. And they're going to, again, experience good from God in the land. And so here, what Daniel is saying, as he says in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books. 
the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So at this point in the reign of Darius that Daniel is recognizing, there's somewhere between five and seven years left that they have to be here in Babylon before, of course, they're, they're ushered back out. Now, in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fastings, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel here comes and he is very sincerely humbled and broken before the Lord. And so Daniel, in this point we see here, he just sets his face toward the, the Lord God. He wants to make a request by prayer and supplications, fastings, sackcloth, ashes, make confession and say, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Verse 6, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, verse 8, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Notice what Daniel begins to do. He comes and he says he first and foremost sets his face towards the Lord. And he begins to make request by prayer. In verse 16 of Daniel chapter 9, he makes a statement, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. So he comes now to this point where he's asking God, he says, listen, you have every right. We, we've sinned against you. And he's going to go on and speak about that sin but he's making this statement to the Lord. He says, God, if, if you would um, pour out your righteousness and, and let your anger and your fury be turned away. A couple of things that I want to note here. As the very beginning, Daniel begins to set his face towards the Lord. In other words, he, he wants God to... One, direct him. He wants understanding. He wants clarity. And the very first thing that he does, and I think it's important, he just sets his face towards the Lord. He's, he's looking to God. He's looking for the Lord. He's looking for understanding. Remember that passage there in the, the book of Joshua, chapter 9. There was a point where, as they were conquering, eventually they came to a point where this group of people called the Gibeonites had come and said, we came from a faraway place. 
Well, what happens is this. There's a passage, jot it down if you're a note taker. In Joshua 9, verse 14 and 15, it declares this. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And then verse 16, it happened at the end of three days after they made a covenant with them that they heard there were their neighbors who dwelt near to them. The amazing thing about Joshua, and Joshua is usually a man of prayer. At this point, everything that he sees in his, his, his you know, carnal way with his eyes, with his ears, what, what he looks at, it seems true to him. And so he does not seek the Lord. And I love what James tells us. James chapter 1 verse 5. It's just a, a great passage. You may want to just have this where it says, If anyone lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach that it may be given to him. Now, the question is if anyone lacks wisdom. Um, I don't know about you, but there, there's this passage in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 13, verse 12, that says, Now we see through a mirror darkly or a glass, a mirror dimly or a glass darkly. We don't fully understand what's going on. So if you're wondering, do, do I lack wisdom? The answer is, well, are you finite in your understanding or infinite in your understanding? If you're infinite, no, you don't lack wisdom. But only God is infinite in his understanding. We are all finite. So ask of God. Even if you think you know the answer, I would, I would just give you the suggestion, ask of God. And what Daniel does is Daniel here, the very first thing he does is he sets his face towards the Lord. I, I'm not setting my face towards anyone else, to any other thing. I'm setting my face towards you. And as he sets his face to the Lord, he makes now a request, first by prayer, then by supplication, then by fastings, then by sackcloth and by ashes. Understand that, that he begins to pray and then he recognizes this absolute need of how empty he is. And then as he begins to find out with that supplication, then he begins to fast and say, God, I really need to hear from you. And then he's broken even further in sackcloth and ashes. So understand that as Daniel begins to pray, as, as he looks to the Lord, he begins to see himself in such a horrible way. And we're going to see here in just a moment how it's so important that, that what we need to do is we have to elevate God and we have to decrease us. So when he makes, starts by looking at the Lord, starts by praying, then realizing he even needs more than that, then he begins to do supplication. He needs to hear from God even more than that. Begins to do fasting with sackcloth and ashes. And then I prayed, verse 4, to the Lord my God and made confession. Then at this point, he just started saying, God, <laughs> well, I got issues. And I love the heart of this because he's, he's exalting God and he begins to lower himself. Notice what he does in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O oh Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with mercy with those who love him and those who keeps his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. 
even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. And neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. So here Daniel begins to look to the Lord and he, his first confession and, and understand that that term confession has that, that where um, it, it literally means to, you can mean to confess, to praise, to thanks to, for thanksgiving, um, but it, it means in a realist sense to hold out the hand. And so he looks to this and, and it's almost like that person, he says, God, you are the giver. I'm so needy. And it's the, the first confession that he makes is, God, you are great and awesome. And I love how he does this. Now, keep in mind that when he says in verse 3, I set my face towards the Lord God, that term there, that Lord, should be capital L and the rest of the small letters. That term means Adonai. And so he says, Adonai Elohim. And so he calls him the Lord God. But in verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord. And now he uses, it should be all caps, that's that Yahweh, Jehovah, the YHVH. And so he calls him the, the, the covenant God, Elohe. And so the, the first one is Adonai, Elohim, then, then Yahweh, Elohe. He, he amps him up as he continues to pray. He starts with, you know, I, I respect you and I honor you. And then, Lord, you are this covenant God. And as he recognizes the covenant God, he says, I'm, I'm making this confession, you are great and awesome. He talks about God and he realizes, God, you are amazing. And he elevates God so huge. And he says, you keep your covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Now, keep in mind that he doesn't say that you keep them with everyone. He says that there is this give and take that you're actually looking for people who will set their face towards you, the people who will seek you. And those are the ones where he says, you are going to then, you keep your covenant with mercy with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. I want you to drop down to verse 23 for just a moment and focus on what here Gabriel says to Daniel. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. I love the heart because he, Daniel says, oh, Lord, you are going to you know, have mercy and have a covenant with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And God says, listen, you think you love me? I want you to know you are greatly beloved. And you can't out-love God. That's just the way he is. And I love how he says, you know, you, you, you're looking for those who love you. And God says, Daniel, I love you so much. Now, Daniel here begins to do, after he elevates God with adoration, he now begins that heart of confession. And he says, we have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and rebelled. So the first thing he says is, we have sinned. We bear the blame. We're, we're, we've, we've missed the mark. We've committed iniquity. That term iniquity means to make something straight crooked. And it means to, to, to bend over, to bow over, but it means to make something crooked or make something bent. So I don't know if you've ever heard of a thing called a little white lie, or maybe you've looked and you said, well, this is a gray area in scripture. 
What you're doing is this. You're making something that's absolutely straight. And you said, well, we can bend it just a little bit. That's iniquity. And so if you can say, I can bend this just a little bit. Uh, understand, this is what Daniel's saying. We, we've committed, we have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. In other words, we simply make trouble. We're violating your thing. And then he says, we have rebelled. Um, I don't know if you know what rebellion is. Um, and maybe if you were ever, you know, four or 13 or 22, you might have experienced rebellion. He said, we've rebelled. Now, I love the heart because when you see Daniel through this book, the amazing thing is I have not seen Daniel sin. I've not seen Daniel commit iniquity. I've not seen Daniel do wickedly, and I've not seen Daniel rebel. But what does he say? We. He attaches himself with the people. He doesn't say they, they, they. He says we. The, you know, I'm, I'm part of this nation. I'm part of what's going on. And Daniel here is just adding his whole heart and his whole being in to this intercessory prayer to the nation of Israel. He says, even by departing from your precept and your judgments, all of your commands and, and all of your decrees, neither have we heeded the servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and all the people of the land. Now in verse 7, he says, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but shame, but to us, shame of face. And again, I want you to see how he, he tries to bring the separation between God and himself. He says, righteousness is you, shame of face to us. When you begin to exalt God and you begin to humble yourself, you see God as great and awesome. And the higher you lift him up and the lower you allow yourself to be, the greater the grace you realize was God saving you. But if you don't think God was that, that all that much, you don't think he's all that, that, that great, and you think, well, I haven't done all that bad, then how little is that grace? How little is that love? And I, I love what Daniel does. He tries to exalt God as high as he can. He says, righteousness belongs to you. You are great, you are awesome, but to us, simply shame of face. So as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, and in all countries which you have driven them because of the faithfulness which they have committed against you. So he's open and he says, Lord, I know what they've done. They've sinned against you. You've scattered them. You've taken them away from Israel. You've taken them away from Jerusalem. Now verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Understand what Daniel is declaring here in verse 9. He is saying that God doesn't react according to who we are. God reacts according to who he is. Now, what the enemy tries to do is get us to lie. The enemy tries to say, no, God reacts to who you are. No, he reacts to who he is. Um, the enemy lies, and he says, you've done this, and you've done this. And, and it's true, we have done those things. But what he doesn't say is this, we've been forgiven, Jesus Christ shed his blood there on the cross, and those sins are paid in full. And so in verse 9, he says, To our Lord, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Now in verse 10, 
We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us, by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed as so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. At this point, he's just once again declaring, verse 10, we've not obeyed your voice. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, and notice what he says in verse 11, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Now, for you note takers, jot this down. Just jot down Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you're familiar with the passage, you'll realize this is where God brings the, the, the children of Israel over to um, that area of Shechem, there between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And he does what is known as the, the proclamation of the blessings and of the curses. What's interesting is in verse 28, or chapter 28, God makes this statement that he says, Now it shall come to pass. He's promising. He's saying, You choose, it shall come to pass. And so he begins to talk about the blessings. In verse 2 he says, All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So he makes a promise that all these blessings are going to come upon you and, and they're going to overtake you. The goodness of God um, is, is going to go ahead and, and overtake us. And so... I want you to realize that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there are 68 verses, 68 verses. Now, only 14 verses deal with the promise of the blessings. You know what that means? That means that 54 verses deal with what? Well, the promise of the cursings. He says in verse 15, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that these curses shall come upon you. Now, he did 14 verses of blessings. And now he launches off to 54 verses of cursings. And I'm thinking, Lord, why didn't you do 54 of the blessings? I'd rather hear that. I want to know that. And I think he says, well, because the, the issue is this. I want you to know how severe it is when you stop obeying. And so the, the blessings come and we realize the blessings are full. And God can add to the blessings anytime he wants. But he's really trying to say, be careful that you listen to what we're doing. And this is what Daniel does here. In verse 11, we're in the middle after he says, Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, has departed as to not obey your voice. Therefore, the curse of the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. It's an important thing to note that Daniel is realizing, God, what you're doing here for us is you're fulfilling your word. That's all you're doing is fulfilling your word. You promised this would happen, and so it's happening. And now in verse 12, he makes this statement. 
And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole of heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is raised to the ground. Nothing. The, the wall is, is all rubble. The buildings are rubble. The temple is ashes. The, the, the king's house is ashes. And so everything in Jerusalem is just basically torn down. And of course we'll see that, that when Nehemiah comes and desires to want to build the wall and Ezra wants to come and, and finish building the temple and the people are saying we need to get this city back in line. Here what, what Daniel is saying is that we have truly... Verse 12, he has confirmed his words. What you have done by bringing disaster upon Jerusalem, you've, you said you were going to do it, and we just didn't listen. And so it came to pass. And I think it's important to realize that there are no exceptions to the word of God. There have been times I thought maybe this is an exception, maybe that's an exception, but God has always come, and, and his word has always been fulfilled perfectly and i've come to realize that there just are no exceptions so as you obey there's blessings he says you know um as, as you you know don't obey there's curses now i want you to note something that when he does say in deuteronomy 28 he doesn't say when there when you obey there's righteousness when you obey, you're happy. When you obey, you're blessed. When you obey, all these good things come. But it doesn't mean you're righteous. And that's a problem that some people have. They, they attribute obedience to righteousness. And God simply says, what? There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short. But the righteousness we have, what? Comes through the finished work of Christ. It comes through the righteousness that's a gift. And so I, I find it interesting that here... He says, you confirmed his words in verse 12, that this great disaster was going to come to Jerusalem. And verse 13, he says, and as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand the truth. Daniel is saying there's been disaster. Daniel is saying there's been trials. Daniel has been saying there has been, you know, just incredible issues that have come to the nation of Israel. Now, what happens is this, that so often that when the times of trouble, when the time of trial, we, we pray to say, God, would you stop the trial? Would you stop the trouble? Would you stop this outside interference? But what Daniel is saying here is, is, notice this verse 13. All this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Notice what Daniel does when it comes to trials. He doesn't say, Lord, Lord remove the trial. He says, through this trial, Lord, I want to know my heart that I can turn from any iniquity and I want to understand your truth. How many times when trials come do we say, God, use this trial to show me my heart. Use this trial to show me your heart. 
But what do we do? Lord, take away the trial. I don't want the trial. Take it away. And what happens is there are times he'll take it away, but you'll never understand your heart. You'll never understand his truth. And I love what Daniel does because in his prayer, this says, Lord, this is what I want. All these things have come upon us. The trials are here. They've come upon us. And we haven't prayed. We haven't prayed to the Lord that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Now, granted, I'm going to just give a little bit of just license here, but I do believe that they prayed like I do. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. How many times do we pray, stop it from happening. Get us out of here. Please don't let the consequences overtake us. We pray that. And Daniel wasn't saying, hey, we, we prayed that. He said, we haven't prayed what was right. And, and so, so get this, mark this in verse 13. He says, all this disaster had come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer that we might turn. We haven't made a prayer that, that I could know what my heart is, that I could leave this. Show me where I'm in error. And this is the great thing about the trials. God, show me my heart. Show me where I'm at. And then he says, we haven't made our prayer before the Lord that one, we might turn from our iniquities. And the other is to understand your truth. I haven't made a prayer that I could understand who you are and what your word declares and what you desire out of my life. I haven't made that prayer. And, and just as a, as a word, if you're you know, going to just tune out for everything in this message, tune into that. Tune in that when, when trials come and, and, and issues come, don't just simply say, God, take away the trial. Say, Lord, show me through whatever you need to do who I really am, where my heart is at, and then show me this. Show me your truth. Show me your word. Show me your heart. Show me your love. Show me you through this. Don't, don't just stop this. Show me you through this. And I, I love the heart, and he doesn't say, you know, get me out of here. Take it away. Take this trial off my back. He says, strengthen my back. Help me to go through this, that I can learn from you. Learn about me and learn about you. And so he says, because we haven't prayed the right prayer, and keep in mind that, that James says what? Well, you, 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 you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you, 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 you simply are asking amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You want to do it with your own desires. And so as he does this, I love the heart of it because after he says we've prayed wrong, we haven't prayed what's right, verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind. Until I begin to change my prayer, he says it stays. Nothing's going to change. Until you get to the point where you want to agree with me. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, there's this woman by the name of Hannah who has no children. And eventually what happens is she says, God, if you give me a male child, I'll give him back to you. And so what does God do? Let's get this woman pregnant. Let's give this woman a male child. And so instantly, you know, she then, she's, you know, now prayed, she, she waits a couple years and then gives Samuel to the Lord. And then what does God do? God blesses her with all these other children. And how amazing, but he was waiting for her to say what? Well, until you're going to give them to me, 
This is what I want. And so she was like, give me a child, give me a child, give me a child. Like, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And God answers that. Um, earlier, Ray was talking about fishing. And, and one of the things about fishing is it's not called catching. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's not called catching, it's called fishing. And so, you know, it's nice when you catch, but you're out there to fish. Now, my wife has this thing that when she and I fish together, she says a prayer. She says, dear God, if you let me catch a fish, I'll put it back. And I thought, oh, how sweet and how naive. And I pray, it's like, God, if you give me a fish, I will eat it. I will keep it and clean it and eat it, and I will praise you. And do you know that every time that we fish, she catches fish and I don't? And I still have not prayed that prayer. I'm that stubborn. And that maybe one day I will. I'll say, God, if you, you know, let me go fishing with Ray and Mark and, and uh, you know, Tomas, and, and, and if you let me catch a fish, I'll, I'll put it back. And uh, maybe I'll catch one and they won't. We'll see how that prayer works out. But I, I love the heart here because he says, listen, you kept this disaster. You haven't changed anything because, you know, you haven't, you've kept this disaster in mind and you brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does and we've not obeyed. We, we haven't yet prayed the right prayer. And it's important to note that, you know, there are sometimes if you don't sense God is moving in the prayer that you're doing, change the prayer. Change the prayer to say, show me who I am and show me who you are. That's what I want to know. And as we look to this, I love the heart because now in verse 15, and now the Lord our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. We've sinned. We've done wickedly. Oh Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins... And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are reproached to those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. At this point, we see this beautiful picture where he begins to open up. And this is why I wanted you to write down that passage in Psalm you know, 119, verse 49, because he goes to God's word and he makes that statement where he says, remember the word to your servant upon which you've caused me to hope. You gave me this word. And remember we quoted that passage in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, where he says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to that place. And Daniel is saying, okay, Lord, verse 16, according to your righteousness, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. Begin to do that good work. And so he's realizing those 70 years are almost up. And so, Lord, go do that work. And now, verse 17, our God, hear the prayer of your servant, his supplication, supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. I love how Jesus had taught the people when he came in 
um, on his triumphal entry. Remember the first thing he did is he went into the temple and he cleared it out. And he said this, you know, my father's house shall be what? A house of prayer. It needs to be a house of prayer. But keep in mind, according to verse 13, it has to be what? And James, it has to be the right prayer. Sometimes we ask and we do not have because we ask amiss that we can spend it on our pleasure. Just get me out of this. No, God says, I want you to know me. That's the greatest thing. Not, not simply removing these things, but knowing me is the key. And so as we see here, what Daniel does in verse 17, he says, just cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. This is a truth that sometimes we need to be re-reminded of. This is God's house. We come to visit God's house. And so when you come in God's house, and I find it so interesting, he says, you know, understand, like verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called upon your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and for your people are called by your name. So as Daniel begins to do this, notice what he says. Lord, this is your house. This is your house. Cause your face to shine upon your house. When we were in it, we disrespected you. Now, I don't know if you allow people to come in and disrespect you in your house. If that happens, you get out of my house. You know, get out. You're, you're not here to do that. I'm not here to, to, to go through that. And this is God's house. How many times do we come in and we disrespect his house? The house should be a house of prayer. The house should be a house where I want to know you and I want to, to begin to understand me. And so he makes this declaration in verse 18 and 19. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. Know what we're going through. And the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. It, we're, well, I'm not praying because of how we are. He's saying this, but because of your great mercies. I'm not doing this and praying because of who I am. I'm making these supplications because of who you are. And, and if I'm praying in your will and I'm hearing these things, it still doesn't add to my righteousness. What I'm doing is I'm understanding more and more who you are. And that's what we see is what God is doing here. So he says, listen, we do not present our supplications, verse 16, because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, not for our sake. Do you understand? This is for your glory. This is for who you are. Fulfill your word, that word that you gave that you caused me to hope. And I think so often do we believe those promises of God. And, and so often I think we do. We, we, just, we, 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 we want to believe them, but we begin to doubt them. He said, I hope in your promises. I believe in your promises. I'm going to give your promises back to you. And Daniel here is expecting God to act, not because he's now praying or fasting in sackcloth and ashes and making these supplications. He's expecting God to act because, God, I know your character. 
I know who you are. You are the Lord God, great and awesome. You are this righteous God. Righteousness belongs to you. Shame of face to us. So I'm not giving you these prayers asking you to think that we're better. I'm telling you, we're horrible. But I'm here to tell you, you're amazing, God. And as I'm here to tell you this, I'm expecting you to hear and to forgive and to act. Why? Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for the city and your people are called by your name. We're yours. Do what you do so well. Well, verse 20, as he was praying. Now, as I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, Daniel is going to get a greater understanding of not only what's going to happen to Israel here in these 70 years, and as that's going to come to pass, but now he's going to see another 70 times 7 years. There's going to be this added mix to what he's going to understand. So keep in mind that while he was sit confessing the, his sins, confessing the sins of the people, Gabriel comes. And Gabriel came as swiftly as he could. Now notice at the end of verse 21, it says something unique. That Gabriel came about the time of the evening offering. You know what the evening offering is? To have an evening offering, you need to have a temple. And you need to have a sacrifice. And you need to have Jerusalem. And he has none of it. There is no temple. There is no sacrifice. There is no Jerusalem. But yet, he honors that time. Even though everything else is wiped out, he, there is no actual sacrifice. There is no actual temple. There, the, he says, but it's at, at the time that would normally happen, I'm honoring it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, God, this is the time that if all these things were here, all these things are right, this is where, where I would be. This is where my heart would be. And I love the heart of it because where he says it's about that time of the evening offering, he informed me and walked with me, verse 22, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand. There comes a point where in order to understand, you have to be illuminated by the author who wrote the book. You have to have the Spirit give you that, that opening of your, your mind and your heart and to show you His heart. He's the one who wrote it. All Scripture is God's breathe, and it's given for inspiration. So He says, I want you, and I'm here to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then he shall conform, confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So as Daniel here is realizing, the end of the desolation is coming. We only have a few more years before you begin to restore Jerusalem. But God is going to let Daniel know there's going to be another point of desolation that's going to happen to Israel and to Jerusalem. And that, if you're familiar with it, is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter um, 30 verse 7 makes that statement. And so it's known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And there is the second desolation that's going to happen. Now this first desolation, as Jerusalem is lying in rubbles, eventually Nehemiah, Ezra, they're going to rebuild. But there's going to come a time where there's going to be another devastation, uh, a devastation, and what's going to happen is this, that God is going to now talk to Daniel about this next period of desolations. So as this one now was 70 years, he now says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression. He says 70 weeks. Now, what, what a week is, is this, the better translation should be seven Seven-year periods is the better translation. Seven, seven-year periods. A week is simply a grouping of sevens. So the literal translation is 70 groups of seven are determined. That's what he's meaning to say. And so when you see the 70 weeks, the week is simply like seven days, but a week is any grouping of sevens in the, the Hebrew language. So what you're looking at is this, 70 times 7 or 70 sevens, um, your periods are, are determined for your people, for your holy city to finish transgressions. So he's telling them you've got 77-year periods are now determined. And what they are going to do is this, they are going to finish transgression, he says in the middle of verse 24, to make an end of sin to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. He says, these, at the very end of the last seven-year period, everything is going to be completed. He says, in other words, it's a done deal. That's what he's saying here. So the 70 weeks, they're going to finish transgression, make an end of sin, so sins will be forgiven iniquity will be reconciled. So everything that he was saying back in the early part of the chapter, the chapter, the sin and the iniquity and all the things that we've done in our rebellion, he says all this now is going to make an end of the sins and a reconciliation of iniquity, and it's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. 
That's to the people. It's going to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, it's going to come to the very end. And then it's going to anoint the most holy. In other words, Jesus Christ is going to be exalted and reign. And this is what he says. So now he says, this is the timeline. So verse 25, know therefore and understand. He tells them to know this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven seven-year periods, which is 49 years, and 62 weeks, which is, um, you know, 62 uh, seven-year periods. So you're looking at a total of, now get the math, they're going to be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. So there's a total of what? 69 seven-year periods. There's the seven, and then you add the 62. So there's 69 seven-year periods. That's what he's looking at. So here there's, there's seven weeks, and then there's 62 weeks. So from that point, you have 69 weeks total. And he says, at that point, he says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, this is secular history. Um, we know that it actually happened through Nehemiah, but secular history actually gives us the date. On March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah, go forth and rebuild Jerusalem. So just, just mark that, March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, if you take what Daniel says here, the seven weeks and 62 weeks, in other words, the 69-week total, and if you take 69 times 7, you get 434 years. So just, I know it's math, 434 years. 360-day years, you get 173,880 days. I know it seems like this isn't math, this isn't calculus, but you've got to understand what's going on. He says there's 69 seven-year periods. And so you're looking at, basically, as we see this, 483 years. You've got the, the, the seven weeks, which is 49, the 62 weeks, which is 434. So you get a total of the 69, which is 483 years. Now, if you take that date, March 14th, 445 B.C., and you just happen to start counting 173,880 days, and I didn't do this. man by the name of Peter Stonier, much better and had more time than I did. He did the counting, and he realized that what happened to this, it came to April 6, 32 A.D. Now, April 6, 32 A.D. is when Jesus came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And what he says is this. There's a passage. Let me just read it to you. In, in Luke chapter 19, I want to read verses um, 40 and verse 41. He says this, As he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And this is here, you know, that, that, that exact day. This here is now um, March 6, 32 AD. As he drew near the city, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And now he says this in verse 42 of Luke 19. If you had known even this, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden before your eyes. So what's amazing is this, this prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel is saying that as soon as Artaxerxes gives that command in March um, 14th, 445 BC, you're going to have 
seven sevens and 62 sevens is 69 years, 483 years. Count the 173,880 days. You get to April 6, 32 AD. And he says this. Read again in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, Artaxerxes, March 14, 445 BC, until Messiah the Prince, April 6, 32 AD. There shall be this period of seven weeks, 62 weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall, even in trouble sometimes. And verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, after Messiah comes in on this incredible triumphal entry on this donkey, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. This is incredible to see what, what here God is giving to Daniel. And he says, there is a timeline. And they could have literally said, as soon as Nehemiah got that order, hold on to it. Here's the command. Let's start counting the days. And they could have come to that point knowing when Christ comes. And he says, if you had known this your day, he expected them to know this was their day. And they didn't know it. But he says here, verse 26, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now, here's where we're going back to that little horn. Remember, we talked about the Antichrist. So, Messiah shall be cut off, verse 26, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, and remember what he comes out of, the revived Roman Empire. So the people of the Roman Empire, it says this, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end shall be with the flood. In other words, a great desolation. Until the end of the war of desolations are determined, and then he, now we're jumping here. This little horn that comes of the people of the prince who is to come, the revived Roman Empire, they will destroy Jerusalem, which they did after they crucified the Lord. But that little horn in verse 27 now jumps the prophecy all the way to what? The last of the weeks. Now remember, we've talked about what? 77s are determined. We've only figured out 69. 69, and 69 comes from, from the command of our Xerxes to Jesus coming on his triumphal entry. So there's one more seven-year period that is missing. So what is that Daniel's 70th week? It's the tribulation. That's what that seven-year period in Revelation is called. It's called Daniel's 70th week. 69 sevens are already done and complete. There's still one more seven that's determined, and that seven is going to come here in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So what are we seeing here? The Antichrist is going to make what? A seven-year treaty. One week is the same as what? One seven grouping. It's a seven-year period. So it's not seven days. The seven-week literally should be translated, he shall make a covenant with many for one seven-year period. That's or, or a grouping of seven. So it's a seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, in other words, three and a half years in, 42 months, 1,260 days into that seven-year period, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate. So in the same way as we talked about that Antiochus Epiphanes there in the last chapter, 
where he went and he did the abomination of desolation. He put in an altar and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Well, we know that in the, um, where Jesus has talked about there in Matthew chapter 24, let me just read it to you. He says in verse 15 of Matthew 24, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, to whoever reads, let him understand. So Jesus is saying, when you see this abomination, well, you're saying, well, the abomination already happened during the Maccabees. That's what caused the Maccabean revolt. Yes, but that was what? That was a type. He was only a type of what? This other little horn that was spoken of there in Daniel chapter 7. Remember Daniel's 8 little horn was what? Out of the, the whole Maccabean through the Grecian Empire. The other little horn, the first little horn, the Antichrist, he comes out of the revived Roman Empire. So back to what we're saying here in verse 27. He, that is that little horn of Daniel chapter 7, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In other words, he's going to have a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. He's going to allow the temple to be built. In the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he shall bring an end to the sacrifices, no more Jewish offerings. He's now going to bring the abomination of desolation into the holy temple. So he's going to bring the wing of the abomination, shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So as Gabriel comes, he now tells Daniel, Daniel, this is what's determined. And so you have seven, seven or 70 year periods. 69 is all a timeline. It's, it's to, to tell you when Messiah shall come. He'll be cut off, but not for himself. But at that point, there's going to be the one who, through which the prince will come. The Roman Empire will destroy Jerusalem again. He's already done that. They still don't have the temple. The temple will not be built until a person comes on the scene and he's lauded as a peacemaker and he's going to confirm a covenant with Israel for seven years. Say, we're going to have a peace treaty. They're going to build their temple upon the Temple Mount and when they do that, three and a half years into that, that peace treaty, he's going to now reveal himself and he's going to have the abomination of desolation in that temple to desecrate it in the same way as Antiochus Epiphanes is. And then we see that this is that last seven-year period. Now, Gabriel doesn't give to Daniel here the very end of it in this chapter. We see here that he's speaking right now that I'm telling you that there's seven 77-year periods. There's one that is going to be left over now. So... 69 of them is going to lead to Messiah. Then this little horn is going to come. And the last one you have to know is that Daniel's 70th week. 69 are determined for bringing the Messiah. The 70th one is going to be determined through the Antichrist. He's going to bring this seven-year tribulation. So hopefully you, you, you grasp the, prof, the, 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 um, the prophecy. If not, you know, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more you know, after the service. Um, but for the main thing I just want to share with you is, is before Daniel got this prophecy, I noticed what he did. He prayed. He prayed and he prayed. But I want to tell you a, a truth here. Daniel, when he prayed, when I discussed the prayer, the prayer discussion lasted, oh, about 40 minutes-ish, always-ish. Daniel prayed this prayer in about five minutes 
You can read through this, this part of the chapter from verse 1 to 19 in, in, in literally, you know, in, in, in about three minutes. Daniel prayed for three minutes. But through that, his heart was prepared, his heart was prepared, his heart was prepared. I want you to know that you don't have to pray for hours and days and, and you know, to really be effective. You just have to pray. And I love what happens because when you see the prayers in Scripture, you don't ever see them lasting for hours. You see them lasting for minutes. And, and what happens is this. The enemy says your prayers will not be effective unless you can put a lot of time into it. So wait till you get a lot of time. And God says, no, if you've got to spare minutes here, go ahead and pray. If you've got a couple minutes here, go ahead and pray. I mean, you think about this. If you, if you went home and you got home and, and you said, hey, listen, I just got home. Kid, do you mind if I take five minutes just to pray? I just got home and I want to be here. I just want to be prayed up. Can I just, do you think your spouse would say no? I just, I just, I have five minutes. Can I have five minutes to pray? They say, go for it. This is what kind of power comes out of five minutes of prayer. Let us grow and understand that, that what Daniel does is, of course, his heart is prepped, his heart is prepped, but the prayer itself was only, what, five minutes long. Give yourself over to prayer, even if it's a few minutes. If you do that, watch what God does. Watch how he reveals himself. When you pray that prayer that Daniel says, okay, show me me and show me you. Don't, don't take these things away. Show me what you need to show me in me. Show me what you need to show me in you. And then, then let me glorify you. May that be our hearts. Amen? Amen. Father, I do thank you for this word in your heart and how you work and how you move. And Lord, you are truly faithful. We thank you, Lord, for this prayer of Daniel. We thank you for allowing Holy Spirit us to just really see his mind and see his heart and hear the words. Lord, help us to adore you and to confess our wretchedness. Help us to be those people who exalt you and humble ourselves. May we be those people who hear from you as we pray Lord, not, not to have you fix all these things and remove all these issues, but, Father, that you would reveal yourself in a greater way and reveal us in a greater way that we could truly know why we're being tested and, and, and whether, Lord, we're growing in your grace or not. So do the work. Reveal your heart. Reveal yourself through this word we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen.